of Scripture, Psalm 119, and I'm going to read just the first eight verses this morning. Psalm 119, beginning in verse number one. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. And then verse 8, the psalmist says, I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for time together Just a beautiful, beautiful sense of your presence this morning. And God, we thank you as we spend the next few moments in your word in Psalm 119, really directing our attention to the focus and the necessity of the word of God. I pray, God, that you would help our hearts and our minds to be directed to you today. Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own this morning, but help me to speak your words with clarity, with boldness, with simplicity. And as I pray every week, help me to decrease and help you, God, to increase and be the focus, focus of our time together today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are facing a, what I would describe a very serious problem in America today not referring to a politically divided nation. I'm not speaking of the fight for life that is now on center stage. I'm not even thinking of the racial divide and conflict that has reemerged. Certainly, we could talk about those things. But I am considering something of even greater concern, something that every Christ follower should have on their radar. And that is this, there is a famine or a shortage of people in America who consistently engage the Word of God. According to American Bible Society's 2022 State of the Bible report, just 26% of adults in the U.S. read the Bible at least weekly outside of church, which is actually down from when they did the survey a year prior, it was 34%. This same report noted that about half, 50% of U.S. adults read the Bible, look at this, less, less than two times per year. And included in that survey are those that simply said, I never open the pages of Scripture. This is certainly disheartening, especially when we consider the eternal value and significance of the Word of God. Uh, What's very interesting to me when I consider those statistics and I consider the landscape of our culture today, when it comes to accessibility to the Word of God, it is at an all-time high. I mean, we, we have the ability here in the United States, at least, to, to have access to the Word, to the Scriptures, just like that. We can whip out our phones, and we can download probably seven, eight, nine, ten different apps that give us accessibility to the Word of God. 
We can go online and read scripture. We likely, some of us in this room, probably have several Bibles uh, in your own home that we have access to. When you go into a hotel, you will most likely find a Gideon Bible that has been purchased and placed there in the hotel room. We can drive along the road and most often we see billboards everywhere that are plastering the words of scripture uh, in places for our visible eyes to see. So when it comes to accessibility to scripture, that is not the problem that we have here in the United States. We have more access than we ever have before to the word of God. Yet engagement with scripture is at an all-time low. 26% outside of church read it weekly. 50% of U.S. adults simply say, I never or maybe less than two times a year, engage the word of God. Therefore, what does this mean for the landscape of our culture? It simply means that God's word is not saturating our life, nor is it guiding our decisions as believers. Something must change. I think we would probably all concur or agree at some level. Something has to change. It's time for the pendulum to swing the other direction and make engagement with God's word, his holy and living word, the priority of every individual, every home, and every church. It's the reason that we place Bibles into the hands of our, of our children and our teens, and we pray over them, asking that they would make engagement with the word of God a, word of God, a priority in their life. I want to spend just a few moments this morning, and I'm going to give these to you quickly. We won't be here long, but I want to really ask this question. Why should we spend our energy to ensure that people are engaging at a deep and committed level the Word of God? I can stand up here and tell you that we need to engage the Scriptures. We should be reading the Bible on a regular basis, but, but I want to do more than just simply say that's what we should be doing. I want to tell you why as believers, as a church, as individuals in our home, that we need to make certain that the word of God is a priority. And I don't want you to be nervous. I have several, several points, but they're gonna come to you very quickly. Not a lot of commentary on these, but I wanna simply provide for you this morning a very practical reason why we should be engaging the scriptures, the word of God. And let me begin with this one. Number one, the word is our repellent against sin. Psalm 119, and this is really, we're going to really camp out for the most part in Psalm 119 this morning, which is all about the Word of God. If you want to know more about the Word, if you want to read uh, Scripture about the Word, then I would encourage you to read Psalm 119 because its focus is, is on the law or the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your Word in my heart. Why? So that I will not sin against you. Certainly, this is a call to believers, to, to Christians, to memorize Scripture. And certainly that is a focus here at this church. We make certain that in every, every avenue, especially with our children on Sunday mornings, uh, they're always learning a new scripture verse that we are encouraging them to memorize, to hide in their heart. Why? So they will not sin against God. 
We did that at sports camp, and if you had kids or grandkids or you were here with us for sports camp, uh, they memorized, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And I promise you, if you ask a kid that was here at camp or one of our camps, they will recite that to you. My three-year-old daughter, it's about the only verse she knows right now, but she will, she will I mean, she uses that as an excuse to get out of bed, to come tell us that she knows uh, that passage. But we are committing ourselves to memorizing Scripture. Our Royal Rangers that meet on Wednesday evening and the sixth through eighth graders that are going to start meeting on Sunday night, our girls' ministry, there is a commitment, there is a focus on memorizing Scripture. Next year, we're going to even develop this even more. Knowing Scripture helps us to withstand the temptation of the enemy. That's exactly what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, correct? When he was being tempted 40 days uh, and nights without food and water, uh, he was in the wilderness and Satan tried to trip him up, tried to confuse him, tried to, tried to tempt him. And what did Jesus do to withstand the temptation of Satan? He used the very word of God. Satan longs to distort the truth. Satan knows the scriptures as well and he will use the scriptures and he will try to distort them and, and confuse us. He seeks, to cause, he seeks to cause confusion in our minds. He is the author of lies, but knowing God's word, committing it to memory, allows us to discern properly what is true and what is not. I, know, I don't know about you, but for me, if the enemy is trying to tempt me, I wanna be able to have godly wisdom and discernment to know, is this of God or is this of the enemy? And the only way we can truly know that is by committing Scripture, the Word of God, to memory, to our hearts, devouring and allowing it to saturate our minds. Psalm 119, verse 61, evil people try to drag me into sin. But listen to what the psalmist says, but I am firmly anchored to your instructions. The picture there is, is one who has this fixed point, this, this anchor in which really anchors his soul, and it is the very Word of God. It also allows us to fight victoriously, the spiritual battle that we are in. How many would agree that we are in a spiritual battle? And, and, and Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God that we are to, to put on, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, um, the belt of truth, and, and all of these different pieces. But there's one piece of that armor that is not meant for the defense, it's meant for the offense. It's the sword of the spirit. And the sword of the spirit is what? It is the word of God. And so it is, it is his word that allows you and me, believers, to fight this spiritual battle that we are in and it allows us to be victorious. We read in Ephesians 6, verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But this is more than just a call to memorize Scripture. Certainly when he says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against God. Certainly scripture memorization is important and vital, but it's more than that. It's a call to obey his word. I know a lot of folks, um, I know a lot of people that have committed scripture to memory. And let me tell you, they're not obeying what they've committed to memory. And, and so it's not just about saying, okay, I got it up here. It's about reflecting the character of Christ. That's why our mission statement, develop biblically sound believers, people who know the word of God. But the second half of that is just as important, who reflect the character of Christ. And, and so certainly we want to commit scripture to memory, but we want to make certain that that, that scripture is being lived out, that we are obeying his commandments. 
Memorization of scripture is the starting point, but the psalmist has in mind obedience to his commands. Obedience to his word, what does it do? It opens the door for us to repel sin in our life. So here's my question for us this morning. Do you want to discern between what is true and what is false? Do you wanna have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God? Then we have to, we must engage the word of God. The only way that we can truly say no to sin and yes to God is we have to be people of the word. We have to know what is true. We have to be able to discern, is this from the enemy? Is this what God wants me to do? What, what is this? And in order to discern that, we have to be people of the book. We have to be people of his word. Number two, why should we commit ourselves to the word? Number two, the word is our source of truth. Look at what John, Jesus says in John 17, verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is what? Truth. The reality of absolute truth in our culture today is being rejected all over the place. Instead of having an absolute truth that we cling to, our godless society has adopted this mentality that truth is relative. Therefore, you hear statements like this. Truth is what I want it to be today, but maybe tomorrow it might be something different. Or truth is what really just feels right for me. Maybe it doesn't feel right for you, but that's okay. You be you and I'll be me. And, and, and so this idea of absolute truth is completely rejected. Truth is one thing for me and another thing for you. And it's always changing in this culture. But that's not what God had in mind. This understanding, not to place a pun here, couldn't be further from the truth. This idea that truth is relative. God's word is absolutely true. How many would agree with me this morning? It is true. It is unchangeable. Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes, he said, to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. He didn't say, open my eyes to see the truth in what this person thinks or what this person feels. He said, open my eyes to see the wonderful truths where in your instructions, in the law, in the word. His word is truth. So here's the reality as believers, all of us in this room, we need a fixed point in life to know what is right and what is wrong. And God's word is that fixed point for us. It doesn't move. This, this pulpit, I can move it around all I want. It's not, it's not solid. It's not, it is solid, but it's not, it's not um, um, bolted down into the ground. It's not a fixed point. But we as believers, we need a fixed point, something that never changes, something that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word never changes. His word is our fixed point. His word never changes, never falters. And I can tell you this this morning, his word will never misdirect. I know there's people in this room and we've all been in a position before where we're, where we're looking for answers. We're, working, we're looking for direction and, and wisdom in a job, in our life, in a relationship, in our home. And, and we turn to every person and every other book and every other resource for those answers. And we never come back to the fixed point that never misdirects. That is his word. It is unchangeable. Concept of morality flows from the word of God. In a world full of confusion and chaos on every matter, now is the time to return to the truth of God's word. 
where we can find clarity. Number three, I'm going to move quickly. The word is a compass for our life. I think we all know what a compass does. It directs. It gives us direction. It guides. Listen to what the psalmist said, verse 59, Psalm 119. I pondered the direction of my life. So the psalmist, where do, you, where do I go? What's next for me? He pondered that question, and what did he do? Where did he find that answer? I turned to follow your laws. His word is the compass for our life. And then Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet, and it is a light unto my path. It guides, it gives direction. The word of God functions much like a map, a map for my life. Questions of purpose and mission, which we've probably all asked once or, or maybe multiple times in our life. What is my purpose? What does God have in store for me? What am I supposed to do next? Am I supposed to take this job? Am I not supposed to take this job? Is, is this where God wants me? Am I supposed to move or not move? We've all asked those questions. Or, or what am I going to contribute here uh, at this church or in society? These are questions we're wrestling with. And where do we find the answers? Not in some other book or some other resource. We ponder those questions and we look unto the word of God, which serves as our compass. Wise counsel regarding my next move can be found in his word. In this dark, crooked, and perverted world, his word is my navigator. Uh, a friend of mine, Pastor Josh, uh, pastors our Hartford City campus. Anytime we've gone on trips before, oftentimes he does the driving. Um, and we get there a whole lot faster. Not, we're, safely, we get there fast. And I'm still in one piece. Um, but oftentimes he will do the driving, but I'll sit in the passenger seat and I become his navigator. He depends on me to say, turn left here or get off at this exit or in two miles, we're gonna you know, take a right or, or this is where we need to stop. And so uh, I'm not comparing myself here to the word of God by any means, but I want us to understand that we all need that guide, that direction, that compass, that source of direction in our life. And we can only find that, truly find that in the word of God. And nowhere else. So often we search for counsel and direction in places other than God's word. But when we engage his word, clear guidance is given. Psalm 119, 98, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Just as a side note, I don't have this in my notes this morning, but maybe you're, you're asking this question. You think about um, people in Scripture going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Remember, uh, God came to Abram and said to Abram, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your, your land, your household, everything that you're familiar with, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. Uh, God did not lay out this very clear perfect map for Abram that said, okay, I want you to stop here first, here next, here, and, and this is the path I want you to take. It was just simply trust me, have obedience to my, my commands. I want you to leave. This is from me, and I want you to trust me as I guide you along the way. And, and so, folks, we cannot approach Scripture in such a way where we say, okay, you know, I'm in a season in my life where I need direction, and, and am I, is this a job that I want to take or I'm supposed to take, or what is my next move? We can't say, all right, I'm going to search the scriptures and just see where, I, where it shows up and, and boom, this must be what God wants me to do. And then once I feel like I have my direction, leave the word of God alone and move on and do our own thing. That's not how we're to approach scripture. We need to constantly come back to his word. We need, we need to allow his word to saturate our hearts and our minds because I, I want to know, know the will of God. 
I want to know the heart of God. I want to know his vision for my life, for the life of this church, for your lives. And in order to do so, we can't just approach and engage scripture on a on a um, uh, you know, on just this, this occasion where I feel like, okay, this is a time where I need to engage it. We need to be consistently in the word of God and allow it to change us because it reveals who God is. And the better that we know God, the better we're gonna understand his heart and the clearer his will for my life, his will for the life of this church will become. But if we distance ourselves altogether from the word, we're gonna constantly be wrestling with what's next. Where does God want me to go? But if we're rooted, engaged in the word of God, I can promise you he will guide our path. Number four, the word is sustenance for our soul. Psalm 119, verse 37, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life, the psalmist says through your word. Give me life, sustenance for our soul. The word of God, it offers nourishment for our soul unlike anything else. Jeremiah understood this. Listen to what Jeremiah said in chapter 15, verse 16. When I discovered your words, he said, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight. Jesus lived this in the wilderness. Uh, Matthew chapter four, during that time, the devil came, said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The psalmist made this very clear. He said in Psalm 119, verse 92, if your instructions hadn't sustained me with joy, I would have died in my misery. He understood it was sustenance for his soul. And then the psalmist said in verse 103, I love this, love this verse, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Sustenance for my soul. This was even the meaning, when we consider the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, this was the meaning of that miracle. And the disciples missed it. Remember, they left that miracle. They get on the boat and they leave the bread behind. And they're like, we don't have any bread. And what are we going to do? And, and, and it was in this moment that the disciples discovered and learned that Jesus was the bread of life. And that he was way more than enough, more than what any physical bread could sustain them with, Jesus could forever sustain their soul. That's the same thing he said to the woman in, in John chapter four, the Samaritan woman who, and Jesus comes, give me a drink, and, and they have this conversation, and he says to her, I'm gonna give you living water, and you will never thirst again. Folks, Jesus, who is the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, John 1, 14, the word became flesh, he, Jesus, will sustain our souls. And I'm here to tell you, he is absolutely more than enough. He is all that we need. He is all sufficient. We don't need Jesus and a lot of other things to sustain us. He will sustain us if we allow him to. His word is enough to satisfy our hungry hearts. Number five, the word is comfort to the hurting hearts. Psalm 119, verse 52, I meditate on your age-old regulations. Oh, Lord, they what do they do? They comfort me. Certainly, I think most of us would agree, even over the last few weeks, maybe months, maybe even few years, this community, our community here in this county has experienced some um, unfortunate tragedies, lives that have been taken way too soon, accidents that have occurred. And I'm here to tell you, there is no human word that I can offer a family parents or a grandparent, a son or a daughter that will ever, 
ever be sufficient to offer comfort. That's why if I stand behind a pulpit at a funeral service, the very first thing that I'll always do and will always do is I will point them, let's hear the words of God, the only word that can offer true comfort. The Lord promises in Scripture to be near to the brokenhearted. Those who are hurting, they aren't looking for cute answers or some theological construct to to offer hope or healing. Let's remember that the word of God, it offers us supernatural comfort unlike any human word can ever do. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father. He is what? He is the source of all comforts. And he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Number five, the word is eternal. Psalm 119, verse 89, this was part of our call to worship. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. How many are thankful that his word is eternal? It stands firm, it is unchangeable. His word is not bound by some natural human law such as time. Instead, it is eternal, indicating that it is superior in nature. It is more than sufficient. Number six or seven, I lost track. (laughs) But this is the last one. The word is holy, is spirit inspired. It's useful in our lives. And it is full of transforming power. Holy Spirit inspired. What is meant by that? Don't have time to give you all the theology behind the inspiration of Scripture, but let me just make a few comments this morning. First of all, it simply means that it's not purely the words of human authors. The Word of God, it was penned, listen to this, was penned by humans, just like you and me, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And God even allowed them to write with their unique personalities in mind. That's, that's why when Mark is recording his gospel, uh, Mark was, was really um, kind of through the lens of Peter. And, and as this gospel is being recorded, um, it, it is to the point immediately, immediately, immediately. And Luke, remember, Luke is a physician and he is recording with his personality in mind. Luke is all about the details. He wants to jot, uh, make certain that he, he crosses every T and dots every I, yet every single one of these human authors, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is what is amazing to me. Consider all of Scripture, 66 books of the Bible written by 40 different human authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit over a span or over a period of 1,500 years. And guess what? They are all communicating the same gospel message. From Genesis to Revelation, 1,500 years span the amount of time that 40 different human authors are recording the words of God. And they, Genesis, Exodus, all the way to Jude and Revelation, they are recording the same gospel message. You will not find contradictory statements, something that's said in Genesis that doesn't line up with what is said in Revelation. And folks, don't tell me that that is not an act of God. There is no humanly possible way for 40 different people over the span of 1,500 years to record the same gospel message apart from Holy Spirit inspiration. 
And that is the beauty. That's why his word is alive and it is powerful. Second Peter chapter 1, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No other prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. It's useful in our everyday lives. How many believe that the word of God still speaks today? Amen? Whether it's Genesis, whether it's even, even Leviticus, it still speaks. It is still part of the living word of God. It is still applicable. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture it is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. That goes back to his word. It's truth. It is the, it is the compass. It is the guide for our lives. It allows us to discern what is true, what is not. It guides us and it directs us. And I'm thankful that for that. And finally, number three, what does the word do? It transforms our lives. His word transforms our lives. That's why I will not stand up here and apologize to you for preaching the word of God because there's nothing that I say or I do that can change your heart or your life. I'm just a a vessel, a mouthpiece, and I am here to communicate his word. And that's why when I pray, Holy Spirit, help me to speak your word boldly, with simplicity, with clarity, and most importantly, help me to decrease and him to increase. Why? Because I want you all, I want us all to hear from him, not from me. Because he can change our heart and our life. And he's certain, I'm certain any of you, I, if I were to ask for testimony upon testimony in this room, I'm certain many of you can say his word has changed me. It's transformed me. Uh, I am a new creature. I'm a new creation in Christ because of his word. And, and, and I know people who have been changed and transformed by this living word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God, it is alive, it's powerful. Sharper than any, sh- any sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The sword that is being referred to here may actually refer to like a meat-cutting knife, not necessarily a soldier's sword. A meat-cutting knife would have been a whole lot sharper. It would have the ability to cut between ligaments and, and tendons, and it can cut away and separate that which was seemingly indistinguishable. And guess what? God's Word does the very same. It helps us discern between what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes, from a human perspective, we can't quite discern that, and we need the wisdom we need the clarity. We need the truth of God's word to look at something and to, dis- and to discern, is this of God or is this from the enemy? In doing so, it transforms our life so that you and I, church, we can better reflect the image of Jesus Christ. If we fail to engage God's word, we are headed down a path of destruction. We need to be people of the word how can we swing the pendulum? There's a few things that I want to want you to consider in closing this morning. Give me just a few more moments and then we'll be done. Number one, as Christians, as a church, as a local body, we need to reclaim our love and our passion for the word of God. Maybe we find ourselves in the the statistics of the 50% that only engage the scriptures two times a year or less. I'm not up here to condemn or judge. I'm up here to challenge us all. To be honest, 
I don't think we can be in the scriptures enough. We, we, whether you're reading it every single day for an hour, maybe we need to read it for an hour and a half because his word is alive. It is powerful. It guides, it directs, it's truth. So we need to reclaim our love and our passion for the word of God. I, wanna, I want you to consider this story. This will give me just a few moments to listen in. And I'm gonna read this to you. This is the story about Project Pearl. Project Pearl has all of the ingredients of a blockbuster movie, lots of fearless, daring, do a secret plan, plenty of edge of the seat plot twist. However, this was no Hollywood tale. It was a very real event. Indeed, Project Pearl's importance in the recent history of Christianity in China is hard to overstate. It was what really fueled the revival and the growth of the house church movements said one of the men who planned and carried out this clandestine operation. Project Pearl took place under the cover of darkness on the night of the 18th of June, 1981. Giant barge constructed especially for the project drew up to Pearl Beach on the northwest coast of China. Within two hours, the 20 strong crew working for the charity Open Doors had unloaded a million Bibles weighing 139 tons to a waiting army of local Christian volunteers. The authorities caught wind of the operation. The crew faced imprisonment, as did the volunteers that spirited away the precious shrink-wrapped boxes. It was a clandestine operation that shaped the whole future of Christianity in China. Church had been growing apace after its violent suppression during Chairman Mao's bloody cultural revolution, which had effectively ended with his death in 1976. Four years later, in 1980, Bibles were in short supply, and owning one was still an offense but China's Christian population, they were hungry for them. The best that most of them could hope for was to copy a few verses down longhand and commit them to memory. The plea for more Bibles originally came from a remarkable Chinese woman called Mama Kuang. After her husband was imprisoned for his faith, she had taken charge of his network of house churches. She had already persuaded open doors to smuggle 30,000 New Testaments into China by land carried inside suitcases. Paul Estabrook was one of those smugglers. The official name was Project Rainbow, but we called it Project Hernia. Those cases were so heavy. However, it soon became clear that 30,000 New Testaments were nowhere near enough. House churches were mushrooming, uh, mushrooming I can't say that, mushrooming across China. They were growing. We need one million and we want full Bibles, she told them. Doug Open Doors Asia director at the time was, according to Paul Estabrook, a man who loved to trust God for big things, and he took up the challenge. The logistics of Project Pearl were staggering. The first thing needed was funds for the operation. That was easier said than done, says the Open Doors employee, Terry Madison. It was my job to write all the material to raise the millions of dollars we needed. However, we couldn't say what we were doing as it was a secret operation. To their credit, our supporters still sent in gifts to make it happen. Bibles, they were printed in San Francisco and exported to Hong Kong in readiness for the operation. A giant barge was specially designed to sink submarine-like until the watertight one-ton packages of Bibles could be hauled into the sea and floated onto the beach. To tow the barge to shore, however, two suitably sized tugboats were needed. Something that seemed almost impossible to find with the big day fast approaching became a critical need. What happened next was one of a series of incidents that the Project Pearl team now looks back upon as nothing less than miraculous. Estabrook recalls that they looked for these tugboats everywhere and we couldn't find one that was powerful enough. The answer came when Sutphin was on a speaking tour in New Zealand. The board there had some guys that really loved to pray 
They asked, what do you need for Project Pearl? Doug explained, and they embarked on a night of prayer to locate the tugboats. After a couple hours, one of the men said, wait, the Lord just showed me a vision, and he described a grain elevator with pastel stripes, and there were trees down below, and up on the blocks, the edge of the beach was this tugboat. Doug says, oh, wonderful, where did God show you it was? And he said, that's the only thing he didn't tell me. The following day, with precious time ticking away, Sutphin's plane was forced to make an unscheduled stop at Singapore Airport. They got off the aeroplane in Singapore, got a taxi, told the driver, take us down the river, said Estabrook. And as they were driving, Doug looks over and he sees this tall building that looks like a grain elevator with pastel stripes on it. And there's trees down below and up blocks were two tugboats. Boats had originally been commissioned by a firm in Indonesia that had gone bankrupt and now they were for sale. It was a welcome reminder of God's provision for the team as the evening of the operation drew near. The gravity of what they were about to do sank in. They got closer and closer. They realized this was really serious. Member remembers Madison who accepted a last minute role on the board as the ship's cook. We, we could be in prison, die, or, at lost, or be lost at sea. And there was one point we were all given a chance to say, this has been wonderful, but I'm not gonna make the trip. None of us did that. None of us were in doubt about the fact that we were supposed to be there. I'm almost done. They were both on the tugboats when Operation Pearl set off, towing Gab Gabriella, the giant Bible barge. We had planned dropped, all, we had planned dropped all of these 232 one-ton blocks on Pearl Beach in just one hour. There was a sizable Christian population in the nearby city. The crew was, uh, they promised that a team of locals would appear that night to haul the Bibles onto dry land and spirit them away. There were hundreds, possibly even thousands of Christians waiting on the beach for us. The men come out into the water, some of them right up to their neck and pull those blocks up onto the beach. And then they cut the packages open and pass the individual boxes, daisy chain style up the beach. It took us two hours, despite taking twice as long as planned and making plenty of noise doing it. They almost managed to complete the whole operation before the authorities caught wind of anything untoward. For hours, the night watch in a nearby government looked. He looked out over the tower and he remained oblivious. On the night of Project Pearl, they got drunk, recalls a local believer. And that's why they didn't see what was happening. The night watch fell asleep after drinking. Later, around 3 a.m., 4 a.m., they woke up, discovered the operation, but the work was almost finished. They called the Navy to come, but it was too late. God saved us. Most brothers and sisters had left the beach before the soldiers came to them. Boxes were still dropping onto the sea as the ship was pulling away. They didn't even know what he was unloading until much later. Eventually, I learned those boxes were full of Bibles. A Bible was a miracle to us. The authorities managed to burn a handful of Bibles. A few more Bibles went astray, showing up in some unlikely places, including a pit, latrine, and a fish market where Christians discovered one of the traders wrapped his catch in pages of Scripture. Over the following weeks, months, and years, the Bibles made their way across China, were passed out from church to church. What we didn't know at the time was that in the 1980s, the house church movement would be exploding right across the country. They desperately needed Bibles. Chinese Christians have since told me that those million Bibles really fueled the revival in China. I have one Bible that was used for 15 years by one young man who became an itinerant evangelist. He ended up with a network of 400,000 believers using a single Project Pearl Bible. I still have it. It's my greatest treasure. As Christians, we need to reclaim. Talk about a love and a passion for the word of God. So much so they risk their lives to make certain that the gospel, not some textbook, not some book that we read in school that we can enjoy and put down and maybe read a few. No, we're talking about a book that is alive, that is powerful, that transforms hearts and lives. We need to reclaim our love and passion for that word. Secondly, God's word must come off of our shelves, placed into our hands, studied, read aloud, and consumed. And this must be our priority. 
We need to make certain that his word is our priority. As a church, I want you to stand with me this morning. Worship team, if you want to come. I want to end with this. I'm going to leave you with a very, very specific challenge, not just for me, but for all of us in this room today. As a church, I want to help foster this pendulum swing. So I want to ask you all to join me, to join us together. And this may seem insignificant, but I certainly believe it's the beginning of swinging that pendulum back in the right direction. Here's what I want to ask for you. I think this seemed appropriate in light of where we are today is Sunday, August 7th believe that leaves us starting tomorrow with 24 days left in the month. Hopefully I did my math correctly. But here's what I want to just ask of you. Nothing, nothing major here. And I don't know at what level you engage the scripture. Some of you, maybe you begin with the word and you spend time in the word in the middle of the day and you spend time in the evening. I, I don't know and I'm not asking you to tell me. But from today, moving forward, I want to begin to see this pendulum to swing. And so here's what I would love to do. And this is something that I think all of us can do. We can do it individually. We can do it as families. We can do it with friends. We can do it certainly with our children and our teenagers. But I want to ask you, starting tomorrow, August 8th, through the end of August, I'm not going to go any further, but hopefully when we, when we finish the month of August, that you will have a new love and passion for the Word of God that, that you won't want to put it down. But I want to ask you to join me, and I'm going to do this in addition to my normal readings throughout the day. But I want to ask you to just read one chapter a day of Luke's gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. There's 24 chapters. And I want to ask you to start in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start with the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus. Great place to start. Told you Luke is all about the details. He's a physician. And I'm going to tell you right now, there will be things you won't understand, things you don't know. There's things I don't know, things I don't understand. I'm still learning. That's not an excuse for us to put the book down and say, I'll go to something else that I can't understand. No. As you read, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to enlighten your heart, to understand his word. So I'm asking you, I'm not going not to follow up with you. I'm not going to call all of you each day and say, hey, did you read chapter one today? Did you read chapter two? Maybe you can partner with somebody to hold somebody accountable. Maybe that's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend to just simply say, hey, did you read Luke one today? If so, what do you think about it? What's God doing in you? So starting today or starting tomorrow, Luke chapter one through the end of August, you will have read the entire narrative of Jesus's three years of ministry, his birth, his three years of ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Certainly you can do this on your own, but if you have children or grandchildren, I would encourage you to bring them in. They, they're not going to understand it all. If they can, but it's just one chapter a day. If they can sit there and catch something, it's the word of God. They can do something that I can't do that you can't do, but only he can do. Have them sit down and read it together. If your child is able, then have them read it out loud study that together. Let me end with this quote. 
Katie Massell said this, a Bible-engaged adult typically starts as a biblically trained child. Unless we train children to interact with the word of God, there is a good chance they won't practice Bible reading later on. So parents and grandparents, let's start that discipline. If you haven't already, let's start that discipline now. Let's train them to be biblically engaged so when, they're, when those 936 weeks are up and they, they're in college, they're on their own, or they've started a job, they've moved out, they have their own family, let's make certain that we know they've been biblically trained so that when they move out of the house that they're engaging the living, powerful word of God. This is just the starting point. But you have to start somewhere, don't you? To swing the pendulum back in the right direction. And I don't wanna do it alone. I wanna, I wanna commit with you as a church. Let's start a movement so that maybe next year, 40, only 40% can say, I read the Bible less than two years and the next year, maybe 30. And let's see. Let's see God do something miraculous.